Jesus is talking about all these unlikely people who come to Christ uh, because of their, their faith. These are people who look be, beyond their present circumstances and became people of God. Now, in, as we look at uh, John chapter 4, I'd like to read this passage just because I want to look at, in detail at this particular portion. In verse 27, it says, Just then the, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came to the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying says, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And so Jesus is actually saying to these people, lift up your eyes. And this is the conversion of, to the world that he is talking about. You know, lifting our eyes is really difficult. Our eyes are drawn to the things that interest us most, aren't they? You know, we see a nice flashy car, our eyes go right there. You know, we see things that we want and our eyes are drawn to them. They are the gateway, really, to our soul. And so, a lot of times, the things that I look at are really the things that attract me or I'm interested in. But there are a lot of things that I see that I'm not really wanting to look at. Um, I could remember a few years ago, if we could turn to the next slide, please. Uh, is I was thinking about central Thailand. My wife and I were brought up in, in this area of central Thailand. And in 2011, they had the very worst floods that it, they'd ever seen. Now, flooding in central Thailand was pretty normal. But in this time, you can see, like, the water was co- coming right up to the to roofs of homes. And, um, you know, this affected me because, you know, this was the region that we had lived in, and, and I knew some of the people there. And so I had to lift my eyes. Even though I didn't want to look at this, I had to lift my eyes and say, what do I need to do about this? Is there something I can do to help? This past year um, was we were looking at the worst drought in living history. And they found that there isn't even enough water to plant their, their crops and their rice. And I knew a lot of farmers in central Thailand. Can we change the slide, please? And, uh, yeah, so this is what the ground looks like right now in central Thailand. And the farmers are wondering, how are they going to earn their living in this, in this coming year? And so those are the things that I don't really want to hear about and, and learn about because those are the kind of things that cause, call me to sacrifice and to think about how I can help others. Um, there is... 
uh, story, uh, you know, it's been said that as Americans and Canadians, we've become narcissistic. I'm not sure if you know what that means. Could we see this, have the next slide, please? I don't know how many of you are familiar. Is anybody familiar with the story of Narcissus? It was, it was actually a Greek mythological story. And uh, Narcissus was a hunter from the ter- territory in Greece. And he was renowned for his beauty. He was exceptionally proud and very good looking. Now, there was a god called Nemesis, uh, who was the god of retribution. And he saw the, that, attra- that, ne- that um, Narcissus was attracted to himself so much that he would sit in this front of this pool of water and he would stare at himself for hours and hours on end. He just thought that he was the, the best-looking guy in the, in the land. He was really uh, proud of, of his looks and, and things like that. Um, but he became addicted to himself. And he kept coming back and looking at himself and looking at himself. And this is why we use the word narcissistic, is that a narcissistic person is a person that is always looking inward. Well, what I don't know if you know the end of this story, but Narcissus actually died of thirst. Do you know why? Because he didn't want to disturb the water to drink it. And he ends up dying of thirst. And so, of course, the moral of the story is that narcissism can kill you. Uh, but um, the eye, as we were saying before, it, it, you know, the things that attract to us, the things that look that we look at can actually hurt us. Uh, the average person in, Amer- in America looks at 3,000 commercial images a day, believe it or not. You know, billboards, this, that, you know, can of Coke sitting here or there. We're seeing advertisements and brands all over us, uh, all over the place. Uh, and we're attracted to these things. Um, Einstein, uh, who was a man who lifted his eyes to the universe, understood the temptation of the eyes. And one day, somebody asked him uh, uh, to explain his theory of relativity in fairly easy terms, something that we can all understand. He says, oh, yeah, that's easy. He says, theory of relativity is like If I put my hand on the stove for about three seconds when it's hot, boy, that that feels like it's half an hour or an hour. It's just, you know, the time seems to be so long. But he says, if I look at a beautiful woman, I could sit there for half an hour, and that only seems like about five seconds. And so he was seeing that there's there's a relationship, that we have this relativity of the eyes, and what we look at is very, very important. And so... Um, another example of uh, the eyes and uh, how they can be deceptive, I don't know if we could turn to the next slide, is uh, this is an il- interesting illustration of a man called Percival Lowell. And Percival Lowell was a very famous astronomer uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he was known for the development of the uh, particular Flagstaff Observatory, which was at that point in time the largest observatory to to view the universe that ever uh, was on the face of the earth. And uh, he spent 15 years studying the planet Mars. And if we could just look at the next slide for a minute. What What he was seeing, really, when he was looking at this planet Mars, he thought he was seeing these canals. And he imagined that there were people on, on Mars because these 
markings, these canals, were very unnatural. They, didn't, they looked like they were made by somebody. Uh, some of them were very straight, and they crossed uh, various um, uh, mountain ranges and things like that. And, and he thought that in the north, where you see those white spots, that, that was ice caps. And so he spent 15 years mapping out Mars and all of these canals. And in that day and age, in the early 1900s, a lot of people believed that there were people that actually lived on Mars because of Lowell's observations. And, uh, but later on, that they proved that there were no such things as canals. In the 70s and 80s, they, found, they took pictures of Mars that were close up, and they found that there were no canals. And so where did these canals come from? Well, if you uh, look at um, the next slide... Uh, oh, yeah, let me just say this about it, that it actually inspired Orson Welles to write the play, you know, that radio play, War of the Worlds. That, during that era, everybody believed there were Martians on Mars, and that the reason that they were building these canals was to, to bring water from the ice caps down to where their cities were. And so Orson Welles actually, uh, with his imagination, developed this radio play called War of the Worlds, where Martians came to Earth to get our water. And it actually created panic uh, on the East Coast in New Jersey and New York. I mean, there was mass hysteria uh, when that play was going on because everybody thought it was real. But where did, that, where did this vision come from? Could we look at the next slide? They found that what um, Lowell was looking at was actually a reflection of his own eyeball. What he was, when he was looking into that mirror, the glass was such that it was creating like a little mirror effect, and he was actually mapping out the back of his eye. And so he wasn't really seeing these things on Mars, these canals. And so you see that our eyes can actually be very uh, deceptive. So how do we lift our, uh, lift our eyes we, the first thing we need to do as Christians is we need to look and lift up our eyes in prayer. Prayer will align us with the will of God. In Acts chapter 13, if we were to, to look at that passage, we would see that Paul and Barnabas were actually um, in the city of Antioch where there was a, a new church. It was interesting. This church was actually very multicultural, very much like this church was, I, I would imagine. Uh, Paul was a Jew. Barnabas was a Greek. These were some of the leaders. Simeon was probably of black African origin. Lucene was a, a Cyrene. Menean was prob probably a Roman. And so we, we see this, this multicultural church that is meeting in the city of Antioch, and they get together, and uh, they start praying about what God wants them to do. In Acts chapter 13, we find that the Holy Spirit says to them, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work of ministry that I have called them to do. And so the Holy Spirit leads them to start sending their very first missionaries to Asia. And so the Holy Spirit looks at this very small church, and you know maybe some of the people in the church might have objected to sending out Paul and Barnabas because Paul and Barnabas were actually the, the best teachers in their church. They were the pastors, so to speak, of this church in Antioch. 
Um, maybe they would have said, we don't have enough resources you know, to send Paul and Barnabas. We don't have anybody to replace them to teach us the scriptures. Um, many of the people there uh, you know, might have said, well, you know, there's so many people around us here in Antioch that yet don't know Christ. Why should we send our best people away when there's so much work to be done here? Yet, nevertheless, Jesus was basically saying to them, look up, you know, look out from beyond your own little world and start looking at the wider world around you and see what God can do through you as a church if you work together uh, to send your people to bring the gospel and to do ministry to other parts of the world. And so out of obedience, they they did that. Um, can we look at the next slide? Yeah, that, so this is the, the church in Antioch. Could we go to the next one, please? And, uh, you know, as I think about my own life in ministry, uh, when, when I was younger, um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I wasn't a Christian and I was, you know, living a life that probably wasn't pleasing to the Lord. Uh, I wanted to live for money and, and for the pleasures of this world. And then um, God got a hold of us uh, and, you know, challenged me really to start looking up beyond myself, not just at who I was and what I could do, but what is it that God could do through me? What kind of faith steps could I take that would really um, change the world? And so, like, I started by reading scripture, you know, every day. That was the very first thing I had to do. I had to ground myself in the word of God and understand, first of all, what is God trying to do? I think a lot of us have visions and, and ideas of what God wants us to do in terms of the circle directly around us. But what is God wanting to do in the whole world? And what is God's vision for the world? And how does my vision fit in with what God is trying to do. And so I started by reading scripture. Then I started by reading books that people had, had suggested to me. And Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secrets was one of the ones that inspired my wife and myself to consider missions. And so we began thinking about, is it possible for us to become a missionary? And then we met men like uh, J.O. Sanders, who was a tremendous preacher of the word of God, and, uh, and he inspired us to some of the things that we could do. So we, we have the word, we have literature, we have people that we know and meet uh, in the church that can actually inspire us to do greater things. And so we need to listen to those, those, uh, those callings that come to us in various forms, whether it's through scripture or through people. I had a friend uh, that we worked with in, in Asia uh, whose name was Ian Prescott. And I remember one time he was telling us how, as a missionary, he was very discouraged. And before he was a missionary, he was actually a mechanical engineer in, in the U UK, in Britain. And uh, one day he was going on home assignment. You know, that's after you've served four years and you come home and, and you try and uh, visit your supporters and things like that. And uh, he had one friend that he went to engineering school with, and they were best of friends. And so Ian went to his house, and uh, as soon as he pulled up to the house, he began to think, whoa, I wish I had continued being an engineer. He saw this beautiful, brand-new car sitting in the driveway. Actually, I think there might have been two. And he lived in this beautiful home, you know, well-manicured lawns and uh, just 
modern in, in every sense of the word and he stepped in the front door and everything was perfect and clean and and he'd remembered you know some of the places that he had lived in in Asia and what a contrast there was and he began to feel envious he began to think wow why did I give all of that up for this you know and especially since he didn't have all that much fruit in his ministry in Asia and then after he sat down with his friend for you know uh, over dinner uh, they began talking, and Ian asked them, he says, oh, well, what are you doing right now? He says, well, I'm an engineer, like, you know, and I followed my my training. And, uh, and Ian says, well, what do you make? And he says, I make jelly beans. I make machines that make jelly beans. And then Ian thought to himself, would I want to spend my whole life making machines to make jelly beans when God has called me to change Asia? and to win people to Christ, and to change that whole part of the world. And so you see, all of a sudden, he got clarity. Uh, When we look at what we're living for and working for, God can bring tremendous um, clarity to our sight. So lifting to our eyes, the next thing it does is it brings light to us. It it helps us to see uh, what God is, is doing in the world. Uh, I'm, you know, thinking about John the Baptist. Uh, We find light in unexpected places, don't we? John the Baptist was, you know, this guy that was very, uh, he looked primitive to most people. You know, he just wore, like, I don't know, just skins, and he lived in the desert, and he ate things like honey and uh, locusts, you know, grasshoppers, and just seems like a, a very primitive, uneducated type of man. And, um, you know, Jesus, you know, when uh, people were going out to see him and somebody says, why are they going out to see him? And, And Jesus said, what did you go out in the desert to see? In other words, why did you go and see John the Baptist? Uh, a, a reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury live on Wall Street. You know, don't go out in the desert to see those kind of people. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. uh, It's about him that it was written, I will send you a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. That's kind of interesting because... You know, King Herod, when he thought of John, he thought about this man. He hated John the Baptist because John the Baptist challenged his way of life. You remember that with Herodias? And so he thought this guy was a challenge to his lifestyle. You know, how dare this man, you know, be so uh, so unpolitically correct as to challenge Herod, uh, you know, this man that lives in the desert, come and, and challenge the, the ruler of, of that land. So to Herod, you know, he saw this this rebellious character. The Pharisees looked at John, they just thought he was some eccentric man, you know, who nobody would follow. I mean, here he is not worthy of, of even being listened to. But Jesus saw a prophet, and he saw a great preacher. He, he saw something that they couldn't see. And so Jesus um, was able to discern the heart of people. And when he looks at us, he's not so much looking at our fine dress and our 
personalities or our incomes, but he's looking at our hearts and what it is that we are doing to serve him. The next thing we find is that Jesus saw people, he saw sheep without a shepherd wandering aimlessly. Look at the next slide. Uh, he, in Matthew um, 9, 35, maybe you could just look at the next slide. Uh, there's a the telling of the story of Jesus who goes up on a hill next to Jerusalem. And he's sitting on that hill looking over the city of Jerusalem. And uh, I don't know if you've ever sat and looked over, uh, you know, a city. Um, I like to go up to the mountain in Montreal and just look over the city. And it's just so beautiful, you know, thinking about all the lights and, and everything. And yet you're far away and you've got this, this perspective that is really good. Well, this is what Jesus was doing. And as he was looking out over the city, um, he said, it says here in, John, in Matthew 9.35, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless. And, um, oh, wait a I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong passage here. He says, uh, yeah, in Luke 30, 13, 34, it says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you who kill the prophet and stone those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so as Jesus looks out over the city, he has this, this great compassion, and he sees the people of this city as being like, you know, like these little baby chicks who are just running around all over the place. And he felt like, like he was their mother hen, and he just wanted to gather them and bring them together uh, under his wings to protect them and to guide them in the ways of the Lord. But yet they wouldn't have it. They rebelled. They, they just didn't want to listen to Jesus. They didn't want to follow him. You know, we, I remember of a, of a time when we were in Thailand. It was kind of interesting that um, we had a small gang of street kids come to our house. And in Thailand, they actually have these packs of kids back in the 80s. Anyways, I'm not sure if there's still a lot of these around. But like kids of, you know, 10, 12 uh, children together, and some of these are like six, seven, eight years old. Some of them might be as old as 10 or 12. And they literally had no place to live. And what they would do is they would wander around in these packs. And, uh, you know, they would get food wherever they could. Sometimes they would steal it. Sometimes they would, you know, find a farmer's field and, and try and steal food. Or they would beg food on the streets and things like that. And so we had this pack of kids that came to our house, and they were asking uh, for food. And, uh, you know, my heart was really drawn out to them, and I thought, wow, you know, maybe I can help these kids somehow. And we had an orphanage uh, in Thailand, and our mission did. And so I asked them, I said, you know, would you like to have a home and to, you know, be taken care of and have food every day and, and all of those kind of things? And uh, I said, you know, there's a place that we have for you. And they said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We love our lives. We love just wandering around all over the place. We can get on trains and we can go south or we can go here. We can go to the beach, you know. We don't have to go to school and all that kind of stuff. They felt like they were totally free. And, uh, you know, so, you know, but one of, the, one of the things that they didn't realize 
was, and, and we've seen this, was that when they get to be the age 16, 17, 18 years old, they're no longer cute. And uh, nobody is, you know, feels sorry for them anymore if they're out on the streets and begging. And that's when they, you know, they really pay the price of that, that free lifestyle that they have. And so Jesus comes to us and says, look, I have this life that I want to give to you. It's abundant and it's free. It might be limiting, but that limitation is for your, your good and your, and your growth and your development. And so God wants us to look up and to see that there is a life out there in Christ that is so much better than the freedom that this world offers us. And so Jesus also saw people who are wandering in darkness in need of light. Change the next slide. Oh yeah, this that was the story of those children. Could we do the next one? Yeah. So um, Jesus said to Paul, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. This was when he first became a Christian on the road to Damascus. And he met with the Lord Jesus uh, and he had this vision. And he said to them that, that to Paul that he would rescue him from his own people because Paul knew that if he went back to the Jews that they would persecute him. And he said, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified in faith to me. So Jesus actually went to the cross with his eyes wide open. He went and he suffered for the sins of the world. And he holds his hands out now to the whole world and invites them to come to him. And I think about other people. You know, we think of Jesus and we say sometimes say, wow, Jesus did some extraordinary things. But can we do extraordinary things? Is it possible for us as mere mortals to do extraordinary things for God? And one of the people that I think of was Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor uh, is the story of that book I was sharing with you earlier, um, uh, Spiritual Secrets. And what, you know, ask myself, what did he see that made him want to go to China? And, you know, one of the things that he does is he describes a waterfall of people that were falling into eternity because there was no one there to tell them about Christ. He struggled, you know, day in and day out with this idea that there were so many people in China that never had the opportunity to hear Christ. And as a, as a man, you know, uh, could you imagine saying, I'm going to reach all of a country or a people group and to have the audacity and the boldness to attempt a task like that? Well, Taylor did. I mean, he, his eyes were fully opened in terms of the needs of China and his commitment to do everything that he could. And it's interesting that in the hundred and so years that the China Inland Mission was in China, they saw over a million people come to Christ. Uh, a church was about a million strong. Now, that's very small in a country that has over a billion people. Uh, but during the communist takeover and the um, cultural re re revolution 
It is believed that 500,000 of those Christians were martyred for their faith. And uh, many Christians in China gave up their lives uh, rather than, uh, than turn their backs on, on Jesus. In the early 80s, it was, it was estimated that there were only 500,000 Christians left in China. But when we went back in, in about 1983 or 84, and we began looking at the church, we dis- discovered that the church had actually grown to approximately 50 or 60 million people. It was incredible that the church under communism actually grew much more than it did under freedom. And today, it is believed that there are probably closer to 100 million Christians in China. And the gospel has taken root in that country, and it is changing that country in ways that we could have never imagined. And it was all because one man was able to lift up his eyes and begin a journey. He didn't do it all. All he did was step out in faith and do what God wanted him to do. And others followed him in that task and and went and did that. The question that I ask myself is, what do I need to, to see? What do I see when I look at the world? You know, I could look at the economic meltdowns. We could think about all the negative things. Some of you watching American politics might be shocked and um, wonder, we're wondering what are we going to do down there. Uh, there's all kinds of, of scary things that are going on. The newspapers are filled with that bad news. Uh, every day I open the newspaper uh, and I find the young people are dying of uh, heroin overdoses. Uh, how many young people today are, are addicted uh, to drugs and, and dying. Uh, we think about the, the, all the different hurricanes and the terrorism and the war and those kind of things. And we, and we have a tendency to, you know, want to block those things out and just go on with our lives and, and pretend that they're not there um, because they, they take away our joy. But yet God is saying, you know, lift up your eyes and see and, and see if there's some area of life that God can use you as you step out in faith to do his work. Um, I just want to close with a, with a poem. And uh, if, if we could just go to the next couple of slides there. Keep going. Uh, keep going. This one here. Uh, this is a poem by George MacDonald that I really love. And uh, I remember actually you know, struggling uh, with a decision. And uh, I, I had another friend who was struggling too, and we read this poem, and it was, it was really spoke to us. It said, I said, let me walk in the fields. And he said, no, walk in the towns. I said, there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers, but a crown. I said, but the skies are black, and there's nothing but noise and din. And he wept as he sent me back. He said, there's more. There is sin. Lifting our eyes, I said, but the air is thick and the fogs are veiling the sun. He answered, yet souls are sick and souls in the darkness undone. I said, I shall miss the light and the friends will, the, my friends will miss me, they say. He answered, Choose tonight if I am to miss you or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, is it hard to decide? 
It will not be hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I cast one look at the fields. Then I set my face to the town. He said, my child, do you yield? Will you leave your flowers for a crown? Then into his hand went mine, and into my heart came he. And I walked in a light divine, the path I had feared to see. So may God enable you to lift up your eyes and see what it is that God is calling you to do. It might be as simple as just reaching out to a neighbor. It might be as complex complex as giving yourself to seeing a nation come to Christ. But I hope that each one of you is, has some form of conversion to the world today, that you will find some area of your life that you can give to see the nations bow their knee before him. Let's close in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, once again, we give you thanks for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for your word, for the challenges of, of your word. We pray, Father, that you might help us to bow our knee to you every day to give our lives sacrificially and with joy. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.